0: Throughout the New Testament, the word fruit appears about 70 times. Most of the time, it does not reference specifically the the thing that we go shopping for at the grocery store. There are some references to fruit in the very physical, literal sense. James, James is talking about Elijah Uh, praying that God would bring famine on the land, and then again in chapter 5, praying that God would make it rain, and he does, and it says the earth bore its fruit. So that's one instance where there's actual literal fruit. But the vast majority of times when God uses the word fruit in the New Testament, he's using it as a metaphor to speak about the evidence that comes forth in our lives, the evidence of what's in our hearts, our words And actions are fruit that shows what it is we believe, what's happening within us. Uh, We see that fruit grows on a tree. It is evidence of life in that tree. And so, too, the things that come forth in our lives serve as evidence of what is happening in our hearts. Jesus gives numerous examples of this in the Gospels. One of the places is in Matthew chapter 7, and he's talking about false teachers. And he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And so he's saying the appearance on the surface, on the external, may seem like it's pleasing, and yet they are actually ravenous wolves. And over time, their words and their actions will prove who they are. Their fruits will expose them. And then he gives that... Basic agricultural truth, every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And then he ties it all back together into that basic point that thus you will recognize them by their fruits. That is a theme that we see John hearing from Jesus throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus speaks often about the bearing of fruit, about the evidence that comes out of our lives. The state of what's in your heart, what's happening as you think, as you respond, as you are tempted, as you are under pressure, all of those things that go on in in the form of attitudes and motivations and desires in there, ultimately are exposed in terms of fruit by how we react, what we say, what we do. We all produce fruit. Fruit. Some kind of fruit. Galatians 5 speaks of two categories of fruit. We saw this last week in Galatians 5. There are those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ. They live for the flesh to satisfy the flesh. They live for selfish desires, for things that they want to please themselves. And so the fruit that comes out of that, Galatians 5 describes as immorality, impurity, anger, envy, and a whole list of things that sort of get squeezed out of us in life's circumstances. Passage also talks about fruit of the Spirit, and that is when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life who is trusting in Jesus Christ, there is the the, the producing of love and joy and peace, actions that, that show a heart that is resting in Christ, and so two different kinds of fruit. Having taught and warned about fruit, Jesus now in John chapter 15, and you can turn there, that's where we'll be this morning, in John 15, answers sort of the fundamental question that might arise, which is, how do I bear good fruit? What does this mean to bear good fruit, and and, and how does that happen in my life? John chapter 15 is in the middle of a section of John's gospel that we've referred to as the farewell discourse of Jesus. It is his night before his crucifixion, ministry to his disciples. He is speaking to them to prepare them for what is about to happen imminently in his crucifixion, And then his resurrection and his ascension. So it's the farewell discourse. We also refer to it at times as the Olivet discourse because of the geography involved in it. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He washes the disciples' feet. They are in the upper room in a a home in Jerusalem, and he washes their feet. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And then he says at the end of chapter 14, where we left off last week, the last statement in chapter 14 is, rise, let us go from here. He's saying to his disciples that now we're going to leave. And so they they leave, and they go across Jerusalem at night. They go out of the gate, down through a, a little bit of a valley, the Kidron Valley, and then up onto the Mount of Olives, where Jesus has this final ministry with his disciples that leads to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so sometimes the Olivet Discourse is what it's called. But during this discourse, what we have focused in on for the last couple of weeks and will for the next few as we move through chapters 13 through 17, what we focus on is Jesus giving promises to his disciples. He is preparing them for what lies ahead, and he is doing so by way of promising them. We talked last week about his promise of his presence with them, his power as well back in chapter 14. These promises that are meant to instill in them hope and comfort and strength, and they are promises that matter to us because by way of application they speak to us about God's presence in our lives and power and strength. All of these promises ultimately depend on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their fulfillment. They are null and void apart from Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. They are just ideas if he does not die on the cross and rise again. But since he does, these promises matter for us. And so here in John 15, two promises in particular, one sort of the the major overarching one and then one that is subsequent to that. The main one is the promise of productivity, promise of fruitfulness, if you will, the the promise that believers in Jesus Christ will bear good fruit, that there will be words and actions and evidence of Jesus Christ at work in their lives. So there is that promise, and then within that is this promise of pruning, and that is what God will do to work in us to bear more good fruit. We'll get to that one in a little bit. Along with the promises, there's instruction in this passage. This is just a vital passage, John 15, because one of the things that it speaks to is what is involved in terms of our responsibility when it comes to the promise of fruitfulness, of productivity. And he speaks in terms of our responsibility with the term of abiding in Christ. There is, in a sense, a sort of conditional nature to the promise. And I say that really cautiously because when we think of conditional promises, we think, well, if the conditions aren't met, then the promise isn't fulfilled. And so when the the mortgage officer gives you a conditional commitment to uh, give you a a mortgage at a certain interest rate, assuming all of your paperwork is in order, and then you find out that maybe it didn't all quite match up, he can break that promise at that point, and your interest rate might change. And so we we have that sense. And so I, I don't mean conditional in that way, but what Jesus is describing here in John 15 is instruction that he calls us to follow to experience the fulfillment of the promise, to experience the fruitfulness. There is a role for us in all of this. Now, the, the good news behind all of this is that salvation, you were given a new heart, and you were given the Holy Spirit, so you are empowered and enabled to do what he calls you to do, what he sets out before you, as these instructions for our receiving the promise of, of productivity, of fruitfulness, we are able to do by him at work in us, by his power and his strength. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you are relying on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are already given the presence and power of God. We looked at that last week in John 14. These two passages run consecutively for a reason. He has just finished telling us, I will be with you through my spirit. He will be in you. And then he goes on in John 15 to say, and here's what that means. Here is the fruitfulness that will come from your life as a result of that. Let me read the first six verses of John 15 just to get us started. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's just start by just identifying. this. four participants, if you will, in this passage. Jesus identifies himself first and foremost, and he says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh time that John has recorded one of these I am statements from Jesus, where he declares something about his own identity. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, as he says here, the true vine. The vine imagery resonates with a a Jewish audience because they've seen it in the Old Testament. Israel is often equated to a vine, but usually not in a flattering way. And when the Old Testament speaks of Israel as a vine, typically what it's describing is God gives Israel this, this blessing, this glorious blessing, and he plants Israel in this land, and he allows Israel to have this opportunity to flourish and prosper, and yet the vine does not live up to what it is called to do. The vine ultimately, as Israel, rejects its Savior. And so typically it is a vine that fails to produce good fruit. And so it's used in a sense of judgment. The Jewish people were like a vine that had been blessed by God with everything needed to flourish. And yet Hosea 10 is one example where it speaks of how this vine... Uh, almost comes to a place of of believing that itself was responsible for its greatness and forgetting the God who made it. Psalm 80 speaks of the vine being delivered and planted by God and then rebelling and being cut down and burned with fire. And so it is no coincidence that Jesus starts this vine illustration by saying, I am the true vine. I am the one that, that does not fail, that does not fail to bear fruit, that doesn't simply take in blessing and then do nothing with it. I am the true vine. He obeys his father perfectly. That's the essence of this this imagery here is this union that comes. And so Jesus speaks of being the true vine. So for us, as we look ahead in this passage, it is then not not union with a nation. It is not being identified with a people, with a nation, with an ethnic group, ultimately. It is being joined to the Savior. It is being in union with Christ that that we are being called to. As a nation, Israel rejected Jesus and proved unfruitful. Jesus is the true vine. Then he says in verse 1, my father is the vine dresser, This is the one who prunes the vine. This is like the farmer. This is the one who trims and cuts and and who does what's necessary to to make the vine grow and flourish and bear more fruit by cutting away dead branches and trimming on the fruitful ones so that they they prosper and they flourish. We'll talk more about this pruning in, in just a few minutes. Then he talks about two kinds of branches. The unfruitful branch is the one described in verse 2. It says that they do not bear every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away, verse 2, this unfruitful branch. And then verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So, so who are these? One thing to keep in mind, this is, this is a parable. Jesus is teaching in a parable. His purpose in this teaching is to speak much to the point of abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. We, we often need to be careful when we come to parables to not try to torture meaning out of every little part of it and make it all fit, and then we start asking questions of it because it doesn't quite fit on every single piece. But I think what he is describing here when he speaks of unfruitful branches is false followers of Christ, are people who have attached themselves in some way to Jesus, who have been around Jesus in some way, and who ultimately demonstrate that they are not genuine followers of Christ. The prime example of this that would have been for John is one that he had just been talking about here in these latter chapters, which would be Judas Iscariot of one who had been around Jesus, who had fellowship with Jesus, who had spoken with Jesus, who had, who had done all of the right things, who seemed to genuinely be joined to Jesus Christ, and yet in the end goes off to his own destruction and betrays the Savior. You remember that when Jesus Christ says when they are in the upper room that one of you will betray me, the disciples at that moment don't don't all immediately, eleven of them, point and go, he's the one. It's we we've known it was Judas Iscariot all along. It says rather that they're all confused by that. They're all trying to figure out who it is. Because they've they've seen everyone carry on the function and everyone do the right things. In hindsight, John does give us some thoughts later that as he looked back on Judas, they, they did have some questions. There was some pilfering from the money bag that John points out that they saw in Judas, but none of it arose in that moment when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, to lead them to say, he's the one. As a matter of fact, they, they all believed that, that they were faithful disciples of Jesus. By outward appearance, Judas went where they went, He spoke the talk that he was supposed to talk. He went through all the right motions. It was very much like one of those false prophets Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, who have the appearance of sheep's clothing when inside they are ravenous wolves. Here is this man whose heart is far away and who is set to betray the Savior, and yet who by actions appears by all accounts to be one of them. Same sort of idea comes up in the parable of the soils, the scattering of the seed in Matthew chapter 13, When the the gospel is proclaimed, that's what's pictured in the scattering of the seed. And the description that's given of a couple of those soils is that in one case, the seed goes out, the gospel is proclaimed, there springs up something from it, and almost as quickly as it springs up, weeds come in and begin to choke it out and it's gone. Whatever seemed to be life, whatever seemed to be a reaction to the gospel is no longer there. Likewise, there are some, it says, who are taken away by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The, the gospel is proclaimed, and for a minute it seems like something that they eagerly want to follow, but then it's there's the world and there's stuff and, and everything else that seems to be engaging them and distracting them, and they'd rather pursue that. And they're staying in the soil where they were, and they're not following Christ. The, 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 the summary sort of statement on all of this is John's statement in 1 John 2.19, where he answers the dilemma that many of us have experienced, which is what do we do with this person who seemed to profess faith in Christ and who was attached to a local church and seemed to do Christian things, and then we look at their life and they are, they are far gone from the gospel and they have no interest in Christ and they have spent years wandering from him. And 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It is a profoundly severe warning that not all who attend church and call themselves Christians necessarily are, that there are people who make a profession at some point in life and then somehow or another go back to living their own life completely ignoring Jesus Christ. There are those like Judas who go out from us because they were never really of us. Had they been, Scripture says, they would have remained. It's a warning that there are some who sort of attach themselves in some way to Christianity, and yet there's no genuine fruit bearing. There's not good fruit. There's not the fruit that comes from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministering sacrificially to other people's lives. There is rather just sort of self-serving fruit that comes about. So unfruitful branches. The final group is a group that takes up the most of this and that we will spend the rest of our time on, and that's the fruitful branches. That is the, the focal point of this passage. Those who are in Christ and who are bearing good fruit, and those for whom he is explaining how it is that good fruit is born. He describes them in verse at the end of verse 2 when he says, every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And then verse 3, already... You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The Greek word for clean is katharos. We get our English word catharsis from katharos. Catharsis is sort of an emotional purging, an emotional outburst. We sort of let it all out in a catharsis is is the idea. And that's the idea of the Greek word katharos. It is a purging of something, a cleansing of something, sort of pushing out all that is filthy and, and having it be clean. And so the point in verse 3 when it says already you are purged, you are catharos because of the word that I have spoken to you is talking about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Christ, you have been made clean. We are sinners who come into this life in rebellion against our creator. We are in need of forgiveness. We are in need of someone paying the price for our sins. And that is what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so by trusting in his death and resurrection, he says, you are now made clean by this word. You are now dressed in the righteousness of Christ so that you can now stand before God as one who is clean. Christ's purity credited to us. Branches that are truly connected to Jesus Christ, that are in Christ, bear good fruit. These are the fruitful branches. This is the the evidence of Jesus Christ changing a life is the evidence of Christ's life flowing through them. So just like a fruitful branch shows you that that vine is working and it's alive and there is sap moving through it and there are leaves and there's fruit, that's the evidence of life. So it is that for a believer in Jesus Christ, our words, our actions, how we respond, all of that becomes the external evidence of the internal work of Christ who has made us clean. Now, on this fruitful branch aspect, there is there's not a command in this passage to bear fruit. We're not commanded to bear fruit because the bearing of fruit is a given for those who belong to Jesus Christ because of his work. Drop all the way down to the end of the chapter and look at verse 12 a minute. John fifteen twelve. this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, which Jesus is about to do now for his disciples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See the words of Jesus? You did not choose me. I chose and appointed you to go and bear fruit. The bearing of good spiritual fruit is the result of the gracious work of Christ in saving us. And so bearing fruit is what comes from our lives as those who have been made clean, as those who have been redeemed. There will be bearing of fruit because Jesus Christ says, I chose you for this very reason. I've appointed you for this very reason. He is going to work in through us. Sometimes the fruit bearing may seem sparse. That's the beauty of the pruning that we're going to see in a moment, because the, the goal is that we grow and that there be increasing amounts of good fruit as we grow in Christ. But it is the powerful and sovereign work of God in saving a people that is also the assurance that the people he saves will bear good fruit, pleasing fruit. There's two activities, though, that sort of oversee this bearing of fruit one is God's pruning the other is our abiding God's pruning is first that's the thing he brought up here that we've already talked about at the beginning of chapter 15 God is the vine dresser and verse 2 says every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away but every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it might bear more fruit pruning is what the vine dresser does when he trims and cuts and makes it so that the branch that is not as fruitful now has more sap coming to it, sort of condenses it down so that it grows even better. It is the pruning work of the Father. The interesting thing is when he says that he prunes that in verse 2, that is the verb form of the word that we saw in verse 3 that is clean. It's all in the same word, family. Prunes and already you are clean in verse three is the adjective form of the verb that's in verse two. And so he's given us the sense here that you are clean in Christ and yet the vine dresser is purging. He is continuing a cleaning work in you. He is continuing to remove things that might hinder your growth. So we're already clean and yet we have this present tense verb in verse 2 that says we are in the process of being purged, cleaned. Really, it is, he's, what he's giving us here are the realities of the gospel and the Christian life. And that is, on the one hand, at salvation, you are made right before Christ. There is nothing incomplete about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a suggestion that Jesus cleans you part of the way and then sort of hands you a washcloth and says, now you do the rest and get yourself clean before you appear before God. That's not the gospel. That's why he can say, already you are clean because God gives us the right standing of Christ at salvation so that we can stand before him. So that the thief who believes in Jesus at that moment, Jesus can say, today you will be with me in paradise because there is that cleaning that happens at salvation that sets us apart. But the reality is we still live in bodies of flesh. We still have habits that that are habituated towards sin. We still know the power of temptation. We still live in a world that is full of filth and sin. And so we are still dealing with the dirt and the detrimental effects of of sin, still as being part of our lives, still as something we wrestle against, still as something that we battle and, and that is around us. And so that's what he's talking about here when, when it says that he prunes us. It is him cleaning us on an ongoing basis. It is God, through his word, disciplining us, correcting us, teaching us things to walk away from, things to reject, things to pursue. This is where Hebrews twelve six says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves as a father does his child. This is the, the kind work of the father to to discipline us, to take his word, and to when you're hearing it preached on Sunday or when you're doing your quiet time on Monday morning and something is convicting you from scripture, it is the, the sweet grace of God at work in your life to be purging that in your life, to be pointing that area out and saying, this, this ought not be who you are characterized as. This ought not be how you are walking. And, and calling us to, to walk away from these things This is God cutting away stuff from our lives. This is where that ever-present work of Scripture, hopefully over time, helps us to be able to look back and say, see ourselves five years ago and see something that we struggled with then and, and realize that God has been giving us victory in that area, that God has graciously been growing us in that area, and we can look back and see some of that immaturity, know that we've probably still got some now, and that by God's grace, there will be more growth and maturity because he will keep Pruning, Keep working on us with the truth of his word and the fellowship of his people. He does that over and over again through his commandments. We've seen that repeatedly in in this farewell discourse. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, obey me. He says it here down in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. God graciously uses his commandments to say, this ought not be part of your life. This is not who you are now as a believer in Jesus Christ. Live differently. And so the truth of his word, as applied to our hearts by his spirit, who's now in us, who's now with us through other believers, the truth of his word has that wonderful ability to reveal things about us to stop, make us stop and go, yep, that's me, that, that, that constant tendency toward fear in circumstances, that quick reaction of anger in circumstances, that lust that comes up in my heart, whatever it may be, that tendency to lie, to get out of circumstances, and, and I go to God's word, and it speaks to me repeatedly about those areas because God is just very kindly pruning. He's very kindly saying, that needs to be cut out of your life because that's not who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. So what, what attitudes do you allow your mind to harbor that keep you from fully trusting in Jesus Christ when trial or hardship comes? What, what attitude starts floating around that, that pulls you toward unbelief at that moment that God doesn't really have this under control? I mean, we may not say it that way, but we do it practically by the way that we act in situations. What what earthly stuff preoccupies your your time and your money and and just seems so fun and so interesting so that it precludes spending time meditating on who Christ is and being in his word? Where, Where are those areas? What pattern of sin do you find yourself frequently stumbling into? These are all areas where God, through the power of his word and the fellowship of his people, He's trying to prune us, and he is. Not just trying, he does it. He says he will prune these branches. He will cut away at those areas to get our attention. So he is pruning. He is the good vine dresser. He is persistently working. Pruning is painful. Most of us don't ask for pruning. Most of us don't pray as the morning begins, Lord, please prune me today, because we know what that means. We're asking God then to bring in probably some degree of suffering, some degree of something painful to try to work in me to help me to bear more fruit. And yet that's what he graciously does. Just like your children, don't say, oh, mommy and daddy, please discipline me more so that I'll be more well-behaved. We still, hopefully, by God's grace, still discipline and instruct and seek to apply God's word. And that's what the loving father does. That's his work of pruning. But he also speaks about this responsibility on us. This is this abiding part. He says in verse 4, "...abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do," what? "...nothing." The, the heart of this is, is just, this is so crucial for us as believers in Jesus Christ to listen to the words of Jesus here and, and to, to strive to understand what this is. So in salvation, we are joined to Christ, right? There's the picture he's been giving of the vine. So you are joined to Christ, you are made clean, you are declared righteous, you are ready to stand before the judge of the universe knowing that you are now dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Nonetheless, we are still walking through these lives and we need to be sustained by Jesus Christ. The branch continues to receive sap and life and sustenance and that's what keeps it growing and so it is for us. And this is not just a Mechanical sort of thoughtless thing. Okay, I'm connected, and so therefore I don't, I don't have to do anything anymore because I'm I'm in there, I'm grafted in, it's done, and so Jesus just does it all at this point. And yet he gives this abide in me. The Greek word is meno. And probably the best way I can Help you think about what abide means is just that this word is translated in a bunch of different ways throughout the New Testament, a bunch of different contexts. And let me give you just a list of English words that are used in our Bibles to translate this Greek word minnow abide, remain, stay, dwell, lodge, continue, be steadfast, persevere, wait. All pictures of things we just love to do, right? Be patient and remain. Just be steadfast. All, all the things that in the flesh we just want to be contrary to. We just we want to run on, we want to do it, we want to get to where we want to get to. And yet all of this word is saying, abide in Christ. Stay right there. Remain in Christ. Intentionally, stay near to Christ. The theological truth is that salvation we are a branch attached to the vine, but the teaching here says you and I need to draw near to him. So what does this look like? And I I would submit to you two pieces to what it means to abide. And the first piece is an attitude. Complete and utter dependence. It is believing the truth of this passage that says apart from me you can do nothing. Well, Okay, but I've done stuff. I'm sure I've done stuff that's been not necessarily bathed in prayer. I've gotten away with stuff. You know what? He is saying to us, listen, I, I I can make the stones cry out, yes, but if you are intending to bear good fruit, you must remain in me, and that means an attitude of dependence that says, really, I can do nothing apart from Christ. I've got, I've got nothing in my flesh to provide for you apart from what he does. The, the, the best way, I think, for us to grasp this is this is, this is childlike dependence. This is that, that child who is in the store and, and they start to wander just a little bit and they get a little down the aisle and then they realize that mommy is not right there and they freak out. Where is mommy? And they want to be by mommy right? That child who, when they're scared, wants dad, right right there, hold me, pick me up. That's what he's trying to emphasize with us here in dependence. Somebody said to me at the door, you know, the the best illustration of this is that nursing child who entirely depends on on her mom for survival at that point. And that's the kind of childlike faith Jesus often talks about, that sense that I can do nothing apart from him and I need to rest in him. Think about what's happening when you don't pray, when you go through those seasons where prayer is just not seemingly on the radar. The attitude, we may not be saying it verbally, Jesus, I don't need you, but we are by our actions at that moment saying, I got this. Because those are usually seasons when things are going pretty well things seem to be fine, and so we're just kind of going on, and we're living, and we're doing our stuff, and then all of a sudden something goes wrong, and like the child who's wandered down the aisle, it's like, oh, where is Jesus now, now that I need him? And and, and he's trying to teach us here that this this abiding thing is not a sporadic sort of running to Jesus. It is an intentional being near Jesus, dwelling, believing that Jesus must speak to me through his word. I must be amongst the fellowship of saints. I I need Christian fellowship and encouragement because I don't have strength and wisdom on my own. Too often we simply don't live like thirsty, starving people when it comes to the word of God or to prayer. The two means of communication he's given us. The way by which he speaks to us through his word, the way by which we cry out to him in prayer. And we can We can seemingly go days on end without that, and yet then we wonder when things go wrong and we're frustrated and we react poorly and we're fearful or we're angry or we're falling into temptation again, because he said, you must abide in me, live near me, trust me, read my word, know me. The whole premise is is Jesus' perfect understanding of human nature, which is, He knows that we're not prone to say, I don't need Jesus this week. I've got this week under control. We're not likely to say that, but too often our words and actions betray exactly that attitude. That Somehow we can do this without him. Instead of being like the child who runs to him, we're the foolish and rebellious child who says, I'll do this on my own. And then we're panicked when things go wrong. We desperately need to see that relationship right, knowing that effective ministry that bears fruit comes from an attitude of dependence it's an attitude it's also an action dependence doesn't just happen by sitting idly by and saying okay Jesus do it I'll just sit here quietly and wait and you just bear fruit through me there's also the obedience to his commandments the stress here again and again. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So my truth has to be abiding in you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. The, the, the means that God has designed as, as part of what he uses to prune us, to teach us, to help us in our abiding is his word. It's his commandments that we would read these. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so abiding in Jesus is both dependence and it is obedience. It is reading and submitting to the word of God. So as believers, we need to continually not only speak forth our weakness to him and acknowledge our weakness to him, but we also then need to respond by obeying him. And and we find out what obedience looks like by meditating on his word. I can't expect to bear good fruit apart from meditating on God's truth. Jesus Christ models this. As you abide in me, as I have kept my Father's commandments. I have shown you what abiding in truth is. I have abided in my Father's commandments. Now you abide in mine. Same way Jesus abides in the love of the Father, is what we are called to, which is obeying him. He is the standard. And so Jesus in John chapter five says, the son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the Lord of life, Jesus Christ, who raised the dead saying, Listen, I can't do this on my own. I am doing what the Father has told me to do. I am striving to be obedient to the Father in every way. I am seeking by prayer and by confession before him to say, Father, I need you to work through me. This is your work that I am doing. He says it in John 8. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. This is Jesus modeling for us what dependence and obedience look like. It is that willing acknowledgement that, yeah, sure, I can, I can run on the flesh. I can do what I think pleases myself. But if I genuinely am a follower of Jesus Christ and am desiring of bearing fruit, then the only way that's going to happen is if I humbly depend on you, Jesus, and I obey your word, and I strive for you to speak to me through it. Look down, um, verse 8. And let me read 8 and 9. By this my Father is glorified, That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. One other principle I just wanna make sure you take away from this passage, and we've seen this countless times before, and that is we are loved by Jesus. He says it here again As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As I have abided in the Father, now you abide in me. He's he's seeking to encourage us here that when the pruning comes, when the correction happens, when the conviction is there, this is not just God sort of mechanically saying, oh, no, you're going to bear more fruit, so we're going to cut this away. This is a loving God, and he's stressing here in verse 9, I love you. And so all of this, this pruning work, all of this correction in your life, I am doing this because I want you to bear fruit because that is the best possible place for you to be in when you are walking, abiding with me, and when you are resting in me, um, then you, you, you see how much I love you as I work in you, as I prune you. This is motivated by his love for us. He disciplines us for our benefit. Verse 10, we've read already, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11 then says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. At the end of this is the harvest. This this attachment to Christ as a vine that is pruned through suffering and hardship and trial and all that we walk through in this life, ultimately, there is the joy of harvest. Harvest. It is the experience of the farmer. It is why at at this time of year, everywhere you go out in the country, there's harvest festivals because they speak back to our country's history of of farming and the joy that came in October and November when the weather had, by God's grace, had come through and the crops were growing and everybody gathered to rejoice because the harvest had come. Jesus uses that same language here when he talks about us being fruitful branches attached to him and abiding in him is ultimately this is about joy abiding in you. This is about coming to that harvest and seeing God bear fruit. There is nothing in life, I think it's fair to say, there is nothing in life as a believer that is more joyous or exciting than God using you in someone's life, than you at that moment of sharing the gospel. And that child or that loved one Embraces Christ. And you have that front row seat. You bet we were talking about this last week at the door, and sharing the gospel with a child and seeing that child. Believe in Christ. Is there anything better than that? Is there anything better than, than having a front row seat to watching God work through you? And so we are just, we're branches. We're branches on a vine. And yet by some magnificent spiritual, supernatural means, God lives in us and bears fruit through us so that we get to sit there on the front row and watch his work and know that he used us in some way. That's the joy Jesus is speaking about here. That that, that you would abide in me and that you would bear fruit so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's not just my joy in you, but this is what we were made for as believers in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of joy we were given that, that, that he's designed for us to experience. We, we, get, we think we get moments of this, but, but there's nothing like watching Christ work through us. There's those moments in worship, those moments of, of service, of seeing him work through you. That moment one day in eternity when we stand before the great harvest of the work of God, We are surrounded by those who have come to faith in Christ. And by God's majestic grace and power, he's actually used some of us in reaching them for Christ. What could be better than that? That's why Jesus ends this passage by saying, no longer are you servants. I now call you friends. Abide in me. We're friends. I love you. I desire that your joy may be made full. Meditate on who I am. Stay close to me obey my commandments, and know the joy of friendship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that today might be the day that your spirit would be at work to draw them to you, Lord, your word is clear that Jesus Christ came to give his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He came as light into the world to rescue those in darkness. He came as life to save those who were dead in sin. So, Father, I pray that today might be the day when you would call to life the dead that you would give sight to the blind, that you would cause them to turn in faith and trust in Christ and in repentance turning from sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, for all we here who are trusting in Christ, help us this week to be recipients of your pruning work. Father, even when it means pain, Lord, help us to embrace your work in our lives, that when there is pain, there is a Savior who is abiding with us. Help us to to keep in in our thoughts the harvest of your goodness and your glory that is at work through the bearing of fruit. Lord, you know how quickly we get caught up in Trying to find the joy of the harvest in earthly treasures. Trying to find that same sense of deep delight and, and satisfaction in stuff that is just fleeting. Be it even relationships, things around us, people around us that we, we stake so much in, wanting to find that kind of joy. And yet you've, you've shown us here in your word. And our joy is found ultimately in abiding in Christ. believing that our Savior is good and loving and kind and a friend and opening the way for him to prune, to cut away where needs be, to draw us back to your word so that we might, in obedience, express to you again our utter dependence on Christ. Lord, cause us again to believe this week that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. May we depend on you. May we obey you. May your working of your spirit empower us to follow after Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.